0: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. May 18th, 2023, the What is the Comstock Act edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily.
1: Hey, David. Hey, John.
0: And by John Dickerson of CBS Primetime, who's just been... Musing. Musing on some of the bigger questions as we prepared to tape this morning. Hello, John.
2: Hello, David. Hello, Emily. No two people I would rather muse about life's
0: imponderables with than the two of you.
1: That's good because you're stuck with us.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Can you muse on imponderables?
2: Well, that's a very good point, isn't it? Because by the very act of musing, you are pondering and therefore it is no longer imponderable. Yeah. Maybe that's the way you can absolutely totally eviscerate all your imponderables, is just merely by musing
0: on them. Oh, it's ponderable now. Yeah. This this week on the Gab Fest. Wait a many minute. We are so early
2: into the show and we've already we're already digging really fresh earth with these revelations.
0: Unlike special prosecutor John Durham, did his report reveal a corrupt politicized fbi poisoned against trump or not much of anything then what is the comstock act and will it be the tool the lever that leads to a ban on medication abortion nationwide emily will reveal all then disney versus desantis who is right who is wrong plus of course we will have cocktail chatter and a reminder listeners if you want to come ponder with us on Wednesday, June 28th in Washington, D.C. at 6th and I Historic Synagogue, we are going to do a live show, first live show of the year. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets. We're going to have pre-show cocktails uh, with a few of you. I th- there might still be tickets available for that, um, but it's going to be at 7.30 p.m. We're going to have a guest. It's going to be incredibly fun. It's a great space, and it'll be a awesome chance to talk about what's going on and just spend some time with you. So go to slate.com slash live for tickets. Special counsel John Durham wrapped up a four-year investigation of the FBI's investigation of possible Trump campaign collusion with Russia during 2016. Durham's investigation of investigation produced almost nothing in the criminal justice system, two trials ending in acquittals and one guilty plea by a lawyer who doctored, uh, doctored some documents to mislead the FISA court. But Durham claimed in his long concluding report that he found uh, bad FBI behavior, that it pursued an investigation of Trump more aggressively than it should have, that it was softer on the Clinton campaign than on the Trump campaign, and that some investigators were tainted by political bias. John, can you remind us? What this investigation was fundamentally about. So
1: thankless. It was, a,
2: well, I mean, fundamentally, Durham was supposed to go catch people who had broken the law in investigating Donald Trump and his connection or not connection to the Russians. He was supposed to throw people in jail. And um, that was in his mandate. I mean, it was to seek criminal behavior uh, and
0: people who broke the law. While doing what? While doing what?
2: Oh, while investigating... Donald Trump and his connection to the to the Russians. So that was in his original mandate, and that's why the ultimate findings are so um, weak. Because you have two reasons to claim the the ultimate findings are weak. He not only fell short of his original mandate, um, uh, and that's that was the specific mandate. Um, and then there is, of course, the hype that was. Um, uh, put out there by former President Trump and his allies, which was that it was not just going to find criminals. It was going to go all the way to President Obama, and it was going to you know, be a long list of people who engaged in criminal behavior. So that's one way in which his weak record was weak in terms of uh, actual legal action. But then secondarily, there was there was an internal Justice Department Inspector General report of the FBI that found a lot of um, bad behavior, um, and the FBI took measures to fix that. And so there had already been a lot of this work done. Um, Durham's report goes a little bit farther, and it certainly goes farther in its criticism, but... Given that a lot of this work had already been done, when you look at the amount of time, the the, the amount of work that was done, I think 480 interviews, 6 million different pieces of documents, um, you got to wonder whether, you know, it was worth all that.
0: Well, I would just, can I just dispute your use of the term weak? I mean, if you are sent to seek, to discover whether there's been criminal activity, And you basically don't really discover there's been criminal activity. You bring a couple of charges and they don't stick. There's an – at least an arguable case, you've kind of done your job. Like you didn't discover the activity. You didn't, you know, go on some witch hunt where you prosecuted people for crimes that never didn't occur. So I I don't like the the term weak for for that piece of it. Like just because you're appointed as a special –
1: but that would be fine if he was admitting that. I mean, his rhetoric sure. is super fiery and the substance is weak. And also right. the fieriness of the rhetoric has made the coverage and, you know, Trump seizing on this seem like there is something there that there's not.
2: Right. So I was making the, the weakness claim relative to the what was and still is publicly claimed about what was done wrong. Um and if it was so, if it was so obvious and people broke the law, then he should have been able to win in court. i also think if you bring three actions and you lose two of them, that's weak. Not
0: in, not in Major League Baseball. Um, the, no, I t- totally agree. What? If you, if you go one for three and you're batting.
1: It's I got better. that. Yeah. the reference. I was just in fact, kidding. That's a 300 just, it, average. It's pretty good, but I don't think it, oh, thanks. I don't think that it holds up here as a good analogy.
0: Emily, do you think was the FBI wrong in how they pursued its their investigation of Trump's connections to the to to Russia in 2016?
1: I mean, there's a couple ways to answer that question. So, in this report, one of the key issues is this initial tip that came in from um an Australian intelligence offer, officer about George Papadopoulos saying that the Trump folks seemed very receptive to getting dirt from Russia. And the only thing Durham is saying now is that they should have opened a preliminary rather than a full investigation at that point. That's like a really minor distinction. And it's being trumped up by Trump and others as like, oh, the FDI should never have investigated at all. That's not what Durham found. And it's ridiculous based on all the things that unfolded from there. There's another set of problems about how the FBI handled these um, applications to the FISA court to surveil Carter Page. We already know about that from the Inspector General's report and the FBI already put in place various reforms to address that. That IG investigation is important and it shone a light into the FBI. It really showed confirmation bias um you know in terms of continuing its own investigation I think rather than some witch hunt against Trump. So that's where we are. I mean the this report from Durham adds just very little to the total picture. And so that's the problem. It's like being cast as this, you know, great injustice to the Trump campaign by the Trump camp, but that's not what it shows.
0: And don't we need to remember, John, the Mueller report, which was the investigation substantively about whether the Trump campaign in Russia had any connections. And there was, it's true that there were no criminal prosecutions of Trump that came out of that, but there was an extraordinary amount of sort of, like, smokiness, re- receptivity to Russian meddling, welcoming of the opportunity to meddle with Russians. So even even if, in the end, there was no active discovery that Trump reached out to Russians and was like, how can we collude to, to win the election, there was a lot of very dubious behavior that Mueller revealed.
2: Right, right. And and the Mueller investigation ended up sending Paul Manafort, the former um uh, Trump campaign manager to jail so um there wasn't and there are there were also about three dozen indictments and some guilt and seven guilty pleas I mean this there was not nothing there that for Mueller to investigate and also by the way on the question of obstruction which is distinct from uh, a connection between Donald Trump's campaign and the Russians but whether Trump himself obstructed the investigation into that um my recollection is that Mueller decided not to go prosecute because of his reading of the Justice Department Office of Legal Counsel ruling on whether you can do that with a sitting president.
1: Yeah, I mean, to go back to the substance, <laughs> don't forget there is this evidence that there was a meeting in the Trump Tower in um, June of 2016. It's Don Jr., Kushner, Paul Manafort, And to set up the email with someone working with the Russian folks, they offer to provide the Trump campaign with official documents and information that would incriminate Hillary as part of Russia and its government support for Mr. Trump. That's the words in the email. And then Donald Trump writes back, if it's what you say, I love it.
0: Donald Trump Jr. Jr.
1: Donald Trump Jr. Sorry. Yes. I mean, If the Russians couldn't deliver, that's what was missing there, not the receptivity, as you're saying, to such a message. I mean, I felt like reading that again, (laughs) I felt like I was both reliving just like this American nightmare that I wanted to have passed long ago and also watching another episode of Succession. Like, this is the same kind of behavior that that television show is about, this kind of feckless especially because it was the kid, Donald Trump Jr., doing this. I just felt like so careless with American democracy.
0: There is this distinction that, that I guess Trump's apologists want to make, which is that, sure, Russia meddled in the election, and they meddled to Trump's benefit. That doesn't mean that Trump is himself guilty of anything, and it doesn't mean that the FBI was correct in investigating Trump over it, that the FBI... Overextend itself when it did that and it, when it took at face value or at least less than skeptical value the steel dossier.
1: It's a whole mixed picture and it's complicated. I think the point now is that, or one thing I was wondering about. Okay, so Durham is appointed obviously by Bill Barr, who was Trump's outgoing attorney general, and left in place by Merrick Garland, Biden's attorney general, to do his work unmolested. That was the sort of like upstanding choice and Durham proceeded and you could argue that to get to the end of this and turn out that it's a nothing burger is like good for American democracy. Okay, one more person looked. they didn't really turn up anything new good. And yet there is this coverage that is making it seem as if there is a fire here. And so I feel like I like the idea of the investigation turning into a nothing burger. Like, that's fine. That's like one way for special counsels to end. And yet then there's also just this problem of what Americans take from this report. And I worry about that part of it.
0: How do you think uh, Trump and his allies will weaponize this? And will do you suspect it will be effective or just? America not really care that much at this moment about any of this?
2: I think that uh, David Fromm wrote, I think, effectively about this uh, in The Atlantic, and he argued basically the benefit of the Durham report – Again, there's stuff here to be angry and unhappy about with the FBI. Um, It's not that (laughs) far off from what the Clinton folks, Hillary Clinton folks, were angry and unhappy about with what they saw as confirmation bias among people in the FBI looking into her emails. So they could all get together and have a big, joyful um, sharing of notes about how when the FBI or some people within the FBI have something in their sights, they go after it and um, maybe aren't being totally rigorous with their investigative techniques. But I think what David Frum argues is essentially the benefit of the Durham report is allows you to defend Donald Trump um, in general, and specifically with respect to the behavior of his campaign on these Russia um, offerings, to defend him without having to actually engage in Trump and Russia. You can basically say, look what Durham found, you know, we were right all along. And you can beat up on um, the FBI and not have to actually defend Donald Trump. There will always be a need with somebody like Donald Trump who breaks the law or rules, depending on what your point of view is. Um, Certainly norms. So often you need a way to defend him if you're a partisan without actually defending his actions. And the Durham report will always serve that role and certainly does now. Slate Plus
0: members, you get tons of stuff for being a member you get no ads on any slate podcast you get bonus episodes on some slate podcasts and you get extra segments from us every week and our slate plus segment this week is going to be a conversation with will Salatan, former slate colleague of all of ours who has a a an astonishing series in the bulwark about lindsey graham and how lindsey graham capitulated to donald trump and what that tells us about Authoritarianism generally. So go to slate.com slash Gapfest Plus to hear that and get all those other luscious benefits. This episode of the Gapfest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or, sister or friend, an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting Auraframes.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best selling frame. That's A U R A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Emily, another week, another remarkable series of events around abortion: North Carolina, South Carolina, the Fifth Circuit. Um, can you start with the latest twists in the Mifepristone case that's challenging FDA approval of medication abortion drugs? What happened? What is happening in the Fifth Circuit?
1: There was a pretty remarkable oral argument in front of the Fifth Circuit on Wednesday in which the fifth circuit judges seemed very skeptical of the FDA and from a just kind of purely legal point of view it was pretty wild the judges who two of whom are trump appointees are first of all, seem receptive to an argument about why the plaintiffs, who are a consortium of anti-abortion doctors' organizations, why they have standing to bring this lawsuit against the FDA, in which they're challenging the original approval of Mifepristone in uh, 2000, and also really what's in their sights, I think, at this point, is the FDA's decision in 2021 to allow for um, people to receive uh, prescriptions of the medication through the mail. And that was based on the FDA's looking at lots of studies showing that mail-order prescriptions of abortion pills are safe and effective. So this group of uh, abortion uh, doctors and organizations is saying they have standing to sue. And here's their theory. Their theory is that the mail-order prescriptions are more dangerous. And so the rates of women going to emergency rooms are going to rise and somewhere In some place, someone in their membership is going to have to take care of someone who came to the ER because they had a complication from a medication abortion. That's a really thin read for standing. It's like a theoretical harm that hasn't even happened yet based on statistical probability. And there's a Supreme Court case from a few years ago, written, I believe, the majority decision by Justice Scalia, that. Refuses to grant standing in exactly this kind of case to an environmental group, which had, by the way, a much stronger statistical claim to actually being affected. What was kind of amazing at oral argument was that one of the judges, Judge Ho, said, Well, of course, the rates of uh, complications in ER visits are going to rise, when in fact, there's no evidence of that. The reason that the FDA said that the mail order prescribing was allowed was that. Actually, the rates of safe and effective abortion are the same. So, the just kind of willful refusal to look at the actual scientific facts was there from the get go, and it kind of proceeded from there. I mean, one of the judges for the government said that the district court's order, which would have forced the FDA to uh revoke its approval of the drug was unprecedented, and the judge said, Stop right there. We just had an FDA challenge in here the other day, as if like any challenge to an FDA action is the same. It was really, honestly, kind of bananas. The one thing I will say about this argument is that no matter what the Fifth Circuit decides, the Supreme Court has already said they are going to stay, in other words, stop the Fifth Circuit's order from going into effect until they have heard this case. And so the chances that Mifepristone is going to suddenly get pulled from the market or even that mail order prescriptions are going to summarily end that does not seem like it's on the table. And instead, what will happen is the, Sup- the Fifth Circuit will say whatever it's going to say, and then the Supreme Court will hear the case next year.
0: What is the Comstock Act, and why is everyone such as you all talking about it so much?
1: <laughs> yeah, the Comstock Act was something I wrote about this week. So the Comstock Act is a law from 1873, which was...
0: Happy 150th birthday. Uh,
1: exactly. And Anthony Comstock was a very successful crusader against sexual freedom of all kinds. And he persuaded Congress to say that you could not use the mail or any other common carrier to send or receive anything deemed obscene, lewd, or lascivious. And then they specifically mentioned materials used for uh, abortion and, at the time, birth control. And then Anthony Comstock went on this tear. He was designated as a special agent of the post office. He claims to have arrested. And he really did go around, like, with sting operations to catch people sending pamphlets about sex education and art photos and birth control and abortion. In the years... um, Since the 19th century, Congress has repealed parts of the Comstock Act, particularly the part affecting birth control. And the part about abortion just kind of became a relic because of Roe v. Wade. Right. You can't have a federal crime of mailing materials for abortion if there's a constitutional right to abortion. And and courts had already really narrowed it like it just sort of went away. But now it's back because there is no more Roe versus Wade. And people who oppose abortion uh, and are litigating this case and others are saying, basically, how can the FDA approve mail order prescriptions of abortion pills if it is a federal crime to mail those abortion pills? um that's the argument in this case and the Comstock Act is going is coming up in other situations it's just it's still on the books and so that's why it's having this uh attempted resurrection
2: i was looking up um what had happened in 1873 just to re- kind of land myself historically that was also the year that susan b anthony was arrested for voting in the 1872 election so just giving your, just to kind of put yourself in this historical place where women weren't allowed to even vote, let you know, um, to pick representatives who might do things that might affect their lives, and now we have it related to an issue, obviously, that women care a great deal about.
0: But, but John, I, I find that a slightly tangential argument. Oh,
2: I mean, it's, it's not it, an oh, argument, it it is, you fuckface. I mean, it's lots just of, a historical fact.
0: Yeah, but it's to make a point, which is, oh, this is so archaic. But we have archaic laws, tons of archaic laws on the books, and it is the job of... Well, it's the job of Congress to keep those laws upstate, updated, and this is the job of the Supreme Court and the justice system to kind of decide how these laws apply. But it's not—it's not enough to say, "Well, it's, it was 1873," so like, wow, those silly old people—they didn't even let women vote. That's not—that's not to me a sufficient. Uh, That—that's a—that's a irrelevancy.
2: I mean, well, it's, it's also—it's think- in addition to being irrelevancy, it's also not the argument I was making.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> I <laughs> yes. think it so, is relevant to think about how the fact that women couldn't vote and until looking pre Reconstruction era American law reflected the views of a much smaller and specific and exclusionary you know, group of voters and people. And I think it is totally fair to take that into account, especially when you're talking about a law that effectively well, that went away era. for many yeah. decades. What?
0: That's a reconstruction era, not pre-reconstruction era.
1: Yeah, I meant, well, reconstruction is when this gets fixed. And, you know, there are arguments about the end of reconstruction and what happens, you know, during Jim Crow that are relevant in this regard as well. But I, I defend John's bringing up but, okay, this but pertinent but, but, fact. Well, I,
0: I guess the the... But the point is that we have a whole bunch of uh, ostensible textualists on the Supreme Court, and they are going to look at this law, which says you cannot send by mail or common carrier anything that that causes abortion. Like, why are they not going to be like, well, that's, you know, Congress should repeal that law. Well, maybe
1: Congress should repeal that law because we shouldn't have uh, laws around that presumably don't reflect people's views. I mean, abortion is still legal in most states, and the idea that you can't mail a single item used for it is out of sync with all that law. I you know, also will mention that the tools that you use for surgical abortion are exactly the same ones that you use to manage miscarriage. And that has come up in various municipalities where there have been efforts to – invoke the Comstock Act to make abortion illegal in particular cities. This is something that's been happening in Texas and New Mexico um, and other places. And I was watching a whole bunch of just regular OBGYNs, people who don't provide abortion, say, wait a minute, we can't do our jobs if you can't mail and deliver these materials. Right. So but anyway, in answer to your question about the Comstock Act, it is important to remember that what the Comstock Act actually says is that a federal prosecutor can bring charges for mailing. Not, it has nothing to do with FDA approval. And so really the test of the Comstock Act the, would be if a presumably conservative Republican president were elected and federal prosecutions began under it. That's the like actual power the law grants.
0: Did, did, did if you look at the pre row. Pre-Roe America, where abortion was legal in some places, was the Comstock Act used to challenge abortion in the places where abortion was then legal?
1: Well, the Comstock Act mostly did before 1960 was give federal prosecutors a way to go after people for mailing stuff. Yeah. A lot of it was birth control. Like there's a big famous trial of Margaret Sanger um, who started an abortion and actually really Margaret Sanger was, it was really birth control, not abortion in like 1916. She was, she opened a birth control clinic um, in New York city and they shut it down and charged her under the Comstock act. That's what it was mostly used for.
0: So let's, Switch gears. So John, North Carolina approved a 12-week abortion ban over the veto of Democratic Governor Roy Cooper. Uh, there's a veto-proof majorities in both North Carolina, um, or veto overriding majorities in both houses of the North Carolina legislature because a Democrat just switched parties. Do you think that this 12-week ban feels to me like it it is politically significantly more palatable and less damaging to republicans than the six-week bans that are being pursued in a lot of other more conservative states
2: well i guess the question is whether it's incrementally more or less palatable than the just general state of politics right now which is that there are a lot of um we've seen it's including in the midterms and in special elections um Unhappiness about the disappearance of Roe. So you've got that baseline on happiness. And does uh, six or eight, 12 matter? Because whether it's six or 12, it pokes that same political bruise for that constituency that cares about that issue. So I don't know if there's an incremental difference between six and 12. I think both are um Keep the issue alive. And I think that in North Carolina will be an interesting test. It's not purple the way people thought it might be um, after Obama won it the first time, but um, it'll be fascinating to see if this has reverberations and and becomes a part of the presidential campaign um, in North Carolina.
1: Well, there's a difference in access because many more abortions, right, obviously. But I will note that North Carolina also imposed a lot of restrictions. If for medication abortion, they took it down to 10 weeks, you have to have an in-person visit with a doctor two or three times. They impose these big requirements on clinics, all this, they're... You know, they have to have the same specifications as an ambulatory surgical center, which is like a way of making it really expensive. And you have to have wide hallways. These are called trap laws. They're a familiar tool of abortion opponents from before Roe was overturned there. Oh, you have to have an ultrasound. They have to tell you that abortion has risks that are not scientifically proven. You have to sit there and listen. Like it, it has other things, bells and whistles on it. This 12 week ban.
2: Just to ask David's question again. To you, Emily, does does the difference between six and twelve in the in the nature of the restriction give cause for or allow for arguments that actually could be more powerfully powerful politically than I'm thinking?
1: I think it's a great question. I mean, I was talking to someone the other day, I was doing some reporting on the Ohio ballot initiative about abortion rights that is up in 2023. And their messaging is about, you know, the risks to women, the loss of freedom to women and people who are pregnant, you know, this idea that you're, A familiar one from the pro-choice movement that you're taking the decisions out of the hands of people and their doctors and you're handing it over to the government and that there's danger that comes from that, increased risks and suffering, you know, and we're seeing that um, in terms of doctors being afraid to take care of women who come in with infections or with um, pregnancies that aren't viable but in which there is still a fetal heartbeat. So I think all of those Questions and stories can still arise, whether it's a six- or 12-week ban. But it is true that a 12-week ban allows for a lot more abortions than these other restrictions, like up to 90 percent of abortions take place in the first trimester. I want to see how big an effect those other restrictions I mentioned have, because that seems to me that, you know, especially making people come back for multiple doctor's visits if they're coming from out of state, that seems like it could really affect access.
0: I mean, I do remember Emily when we were talking about God and the those days not so long ago when we were talking about the Mississippi law, and you were you were pointing out that 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 maybe the compromise was something more like Europe, where first some trimester abortion is very open, and then it's much more severely restricted. I think what you're saying is, yes, the North Carolina law is first trimester law, is first trimester abortion, effectively, but it is so restrictive and constraining that it's not actually the same as what. Europe offers anyway.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's my question about it. It'll be interesting to see what the numbers show. Um, And that will also, though, reflect the desperation women feel in the surrounding states, right? The numbers could stay up in North Carolina because there's no way to get an abortion in a clinic in all these surrounding places. That will be the out-of-state patients.
0: I want to close, actually. It's almost a way to to bridge to our next topic, which is that I do not think there was this attempt in North Carolina to make an argument that if We impose abortion restrictions in North Carolina. Businesses are going to flee. This is going to be an inhospitable place for people to do business. Women are not going to want to come live and work here. Uh, Lots of people are going to avoid it. I think that uh, this argument is not going anywhere. Um, That we've seen the abortion restrictions come in in Texas, Florida, across the South, and there is no evidence at all that it is causing either migration patterns to change yet or businesses to reconsider where they're locating. You don't have big tech companies in Texas saying we're going to go somewhere else. And I suppose in the long run that might change. But I think this hope that corporate America would be so... Uh, protective of the rights of its of its employees particularly its female employees that it would they would they would take significant action to try to stop these laws or to relocate in the face of these laws is is a really misguided hope
1: well there's this problem for corporate america like it's one thing when you're trying to stop one bill or one place right that was pretty effective with the anti transgender bathroom bills a few years ago when you start having like a dozen or 13 or 14 or 15 states like that is Well, then what? You're supposed to leave like the entire South plus the Mountain West. I think that's harder, obviously.
0: Ron DeSantis and the Walt Disney Company are engaged in a fascinating slugfest. Um, I'm going to quickly run through it. So last year, when DeSantis pushed his parental rights and education bill, which critics called the Don't Say Gay Law, Disney's former and current CEOs both spoke out rather mildly against it. DeSantis who was either enraged or just an opportunistic person, has since taken every possible chance to label Disney a woke corporation and then systematically sought to remove various privileges that Disney has gotten from Florida over the years. Basically, the right by Disney to control police and regulate all its own operations. So DeSantis then stripped Disney of authority over the board that oversaw Disney's special Reedy Creek Development District. Disney, in turn, did an 11th hour end run while it still controlled that board to strip the board of any power to regulate Disney. So that even though DeSantis then had power to appoint the members of the board, those those new board members didn't have any power. DeSantis then had Florida undo Disney's action uh, and start to subject Disney to various other regulations like hilariously um, inspecting the monorail at Disney World, which had not been inspected. The state had not inspected for 50 some years. Um, The board and Disney and and DeSantis and the government of Florida are now involved in a remarkable and actually totally impenetrable and complicated number of lawsuits with Disney saying it's being punished for its political speech and DeSantis saying that no company should have all the special privileges that Disney is getting from Florida. And he's just acting in the state's interest and trying to rein the company in. Disney is no longer going to have self-government.
3: They're not going to have their own government. Disney is going to pay its fair share of taxes, and Disney's going to
0: honor the debt, and that's exactly what this proposed piece of legislation will do. Uh, if you remember when we first went down this road last spring, a lot of folks in the media were saying that, oh my gosh, Disney's actually going to pay less taxes and Floridians are going to pay more taxes. They were saying that, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Well, this puts that to bed. And so those debts will be honored and those will be paid. Now, this is obviously now going to be controlled by the state of Florida, which is no longer self-governing for them. So there's a new sheriff in town and that's just the way it's going to be. Before we get to kind of the legal and and moral questions around this, John, I'm actually interested in the political questions. Is this helping DeSantis generally, the fight against Disney is it a political boon for him?
2: I don't necessarily know. Certainly, the the anti woke business in some quarters is a is a boon, um, and it's a boon both on its own terms. But then also, it's a proxy for he's a culture warrior of our kind, and so it's a like you know he's got the right view on these issues. He's kind of on our team, and that's a gateway. Thing for him, I, I think the question is: A, how far does that go? B, is it an inroad with Donald Trump? Is there a way he can take this and use this anti woke business to 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 find a wedge and beat Donald Trump? I think that's a very open question because the same voters who care about those issues are the ones that have signed up for Donald Trump and and call themselves evangelicals, even though they never go to church. Um, so the point being that on the culture war stuff, people just say, yes, well, of course, Donald Trump's on our team. And if you try to find a little distinction to work a wedge in there, I'm not sure it's gonna do you any good. I And I think you can imagine a way in which Donald Trump, and you saw Senator um, Rick Scott of Florida suggesting this in The Hill on Thursday, kind of saying like, I always had a good relationship with with Disney. I mean, they employ 75,000 people in the state. It's a big company. Like, sure, you know, you may not want to get like bad press releases from Disney about your law, but they are a major employer that has a lot to do in the state. And you could imagine Donald Trump saying, you know, I'm a businessman and I don't like Bob Iger. He he jumped off one of my business boards because he didn't like my policy on, on climate. But- Come on, you they they employ 75,000 people. Like you, you this is, he's taken it too far, which is a way for Trump to reassert his businessman credentials and attack DeSantis and DeSantis can't come back and say, "Oh, you're not cultural, you're not enough of a cultural warrior" because Republican voters are going to like, "Yes, sure he is. He's fine." So, I could imagine since DeSantis may very well and looks like he's going to announce his campaign next week, I could imagine this being a downside in his combat with Trump with Trump playing the sort of businessman card.
0: I suspect DeSantis has thought about all this and I he does he is perseverating on this. I mean he really is he is not letting it go. There were plenty of chances he had to kind of not stick it to Disney again and he is avoiding all those chances. So he must feel there's value in it. It to me, Emily, this is a case where both sides are kind of wrong. The special privileges that Disney enjoys are unsettling and the state shouldn't have granted them, but it is also the case that it is Unbelievably dangerous and bad for the state government and the governor to use the power of contracts and legislation regulation to basically punish political speech, and that, I guess that's worse. That part is worse than the fact that Disney is this getting all this kind of chance to have its own police force and basically.
1: Yeah, I feel like the second part is so much worse. I don't. It's hard for me to really care about the first part, right? And it's also just unconstitutional, like. The Supreme Court has said several times that the government can't strip people of benefits they're already receiving because of their political speech. And it doesn't matter whether you have a constitutional right to the benefit you're getting or not. It's just obviously retaliation for speech. And this is obviously really chilling, right? I mean, one of the things that's striking is that DeSantis has been— Going around boasting that since this happened last year, Disney hasn't been involved in any of those issues. They have not made a peep. And so the idea is like, yeah, I succeeded in silencing my critics by using the power of the government to retaliate against them. Like, no, that isn't legal. We don't want that to be legal. We want... People and corporate entities to be able to talk. I mean, if corporations are going to have speech rights, then like this is one area in which the government should not be able to step in and take them away. Seems pretty clear. What, whatever they're saying.
2: I also don't know how this let's imagine he gets the nomination he's he's branded himself so much with the fight against Disney and then some of the other pieces of legislation limiting transgender rights for minorities uh, he's now being sued by um Pan America and Random House for about books that are being banned um becoming too associated with being a culture warrior um, you know, obviously candidates have always run to their base and then pivoted to the general, but he is it's gotta be a real big pivot in the general election. And I don't that's a test of of political nimbleness that he doesn't really have. He has a a kind of a straight ahead political approach and doesn't really um have that other key. So it sets him up for that big challenge ahead if he were to get to the general.
0: Emily, can we go backwards a second? I can't remember where I stand on corporate free speech, right? <laughs> I know that a lot of liberals were skeptical of the idea that corporations have the same kind of embodied speech rights as individuals, and and certainly didn't like that as it applies to campaign finance. Um, is if if you imagine a, it, 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 does one's conclusion about Disney and the and what Desantis is proposing to Disney change if you assume actually corporations don't have free speech rights the corporations are not like individuals with free speech rights
1: i mean sure that would change the analysis it's just really far from where american no, law is. i
0: know i'm asking you <laughs> but i'm asking you is like from a should more it? i don't should i don't remember whether i think i don't honestly don't remember and I, I don't have the brain power this morning to figure out whether i think corporations should have free speech rights in the way that individuals do but should they number one and if they don't maybe you might not believe they should. And if you don't believe they should, does that, mean, does that change one's analysis of where we are with DeSantis and Disney?
1: Well, my quarrel with corporate free speech rights is Citizens United, right? Which equated corporations and campaign finance donations from corporations with people um, and speech. So it's like there are two moves going on there. Um, that, I think, is really a problem. But I th- yes, corporations do need to have some free speech rights, Otherwise, then the government can stop them from expressing any views. And corporations do express political and social and cultural views, Um All the time. And so it's true that the case law I was talking about comes from people, right? This comes up a lot with government employees, like, what are they allowed to say before they can get fired? And if it's constitutionally protected speech, and they're already hired, you can't just fire them because they're criticizing the government or saying something that the government doesn't like. And that's the First Amendment we want, right? We want the First Amendment not to be censoring speech. So in that kind of context, I think it's important for corporations to also be included. It doesn't mean that Citizens United can't also be a problem.
0: The congruence of speech and money is the problem there, not the speech part. Forgetting Donald Trump at the moment, I think what the, the tension in DeSantis's
2: pitch, and, and particularly for the presidency, that I was trying to figure, th- think through here is, on the one hand, he's presenting himself as the anti-drama, um, administratively focused uh, governor of a big state, and he's got some good numbers in that context to, to, I mean, his re-election numbers, people moving into the state, and so his pitch is, like, if you didn't want all this drama with Donald Trump, and you want somebody who's got their eye on the ball, I'm your kefella. But this fight with Disney and some of these other things as well, the fight with Disney in particular, it's just kind of like he's got a business interest in the state and maybe he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want them complaining, but like they are a huge constituent and he's basically just blown through all of that to keep going on this fight down this endless road. And that's both a hell of a lot of drama and it's not really keeping the eye on the ball. So is that anything that can be either exploited exploited politically or more important? When you elect somebody to be president who is basically really successful at winning the attention culture war game, how actually successful are they as an administrator and as a person who gets stuff done? Is the thing that they get done essentially highly uh, recognized political gambits and not actually what he says he's running on, which is administrative focus?
0: I think there's been this assumption in American politics that ultimately – corporations uh, get to call the shots with politicians that that you know they they want new regulation on on how many chemicals they can dump they will get those regulations or get a lot of influence or they want lower taxes they will have strong influence do you think that we've shifted into a world where corporations are in fact subject to politicians in in a lot of fights that they used to be able to either avoid or, uh, that they won? Or is this just is DeSantis just a kind of outlier case here?
1: I think DeSantis is mostly an outlier case. I guess what this does make me think about though is like Trump declaring war on the press. Right? If you can find an enemy that isn't your political opponent that is hated enough by Americans, like that just has a bed that people just like to Like
0: Disney. Everyone hates Disney. <laughs> well that's
1: the thing is I don't think this is Disney. That's why it's such a weird analogy to make about Disney. But if you find corporations like that, I think, sure, then you go after them and then you get the benefit where the press is actually not your enemy, right? The press is not set up to punch back in the same way because the press is trying to cover you and it's quite uncomfortable and um, asymmetrical. So if you found the right corporation, I feel like you could do that. But Disney is like such a weird fit.
2: Disney's got other issues and troubles that are sort of outside of Florida that it's wrestling with. Um, which is why I'm really when I, when I uh, listened to Bob Iger's book on audiobook, one of the things I kept thinking was, man, he takes on these really complicated long-term um, issues, challenges. Winning over Steve Jobs was one. The other was dealing with whichever Disney member, Disney family member, was on the board that he had to like for years, sort of work through. And I thought, man, that guy's got incredible long-term kind of sees the long game focus. Um, and so I wonder if that will play out here. I mean, they already maneuvered around the governor by um, basically granting themselves power before the old board was was replaced. Um, I just wonder in that debate, whether Iger has a set of... Patience, patience and skill that um, that will win or or whether DeSantis uh, somehow, uh, because he's he's just politically has a high pain threshold, whether, whether he will win out. Just that competition between the two of them fascinates
0: me. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. I've never been to the Magic Kingdom. I went to Epcot once, so I don't really know where you would sit to watch the sunset and have a drink. But if you were, John, sitting at the Magic Kingdom and having a drink, and uh, chattering to beloved Ann Dickerson. What would you be chattering about?
2: Two chatters. Briefly, one is the scans of the Titanic. I'm not a huge Titanic person, but uh, the idea of ships, ghostly sort of ships frozen in time at the bottom of the ocean and things hidden from us from history have always uh, fascinated me. There is now a scan of the entire ship. It's quite something to see uh, in its current form. Um, and it also matters because the current form is deteriorating because the bacteria is eating away at the metal. Um, um, but these scans are, uh, they're, it's very cool pictures. The other thing is the amazing... Effort by uh, a Nepali Sherpa who, here in the 70th anniversary of Edmund Hillary's ascent of Mount Everest, climbed it for the 27th time. But what's even more amusing to me, and that, and that is that um, Kami Rita Sherpa, who is the one who climbed it for 27 times, had shared the record with um, another Sherpa, Pasang Dawa Sherpa, who, who just three days before had like re- reached parity with him and was, was this amazing feat. You had two people. Um, but then three days later, Kami Rita beat him and 27 times up that, um, up that extraordinary climb is amazing. Um, so
0: just that feat of human endurance is, um, notable to me. John Dickerson's chatter takes you from the bottom of the deepest ocean To the top of the world. That's very good, That is the breath of John Dickerson. Emily, what is your chatter?
1: I um, read a book recently called Divide Me by Zero. It's a novel by Lara Vapniar, and it's about immigrating from Russia, I think, in a lot of ways. It's like a life story. It has a lot of math in it. The main character's mother is a math teacher. I really loved it. Um, I think it's from a couple of years ago, but it just had a lot of... um, both, it was a very smart book, I guess partly because of the math, but also had really deep feelings in it, um, and it totally engaged and diverted me. So Divide Me by Zero by Lara Vapnier.
0: My chatter, I'm going to run through them super quick because it's, like a, it's a grab bag chatter. First of all, those of you who listened to our Slate Plus segment last week, just an update, Andrew did not get the job at the Catholic school. So he wasn't faced with the moral dilemma. He ultimately was not offered the job there that's number one and he suspects maybe it's because they picked up on his political beliefs and thought he might not be a good cultural fit there that's number one number two if you're in dc on june 3rd we're going to do a live city cast dc we're doing it at right proper great dc Brewery. We we're doing it at their brookland uh location uh, mike and bridget the hosts are going to be there i'll be there on hand and we're going to talk about brewing and dc and manufacturing in dc and it's June 3rd. It's a Saturday at 1 p.m. You can email me at davidplots at gmail.com. I can get you on the RSVP list or we'll put the link to the RSVP in the show notes. It's free. But my real chatter is uh, reading an amazing book also about the sea, The Wager by David Gran. Uh, David Gran, of course, is the author of Lost City of Z and Killers of the Flower Moon and just bright, these incredible historical Mystery Adventures. And this is a book about a 1740 uh, British Navy ship that got um shipwrecked off the coast of South America and what happened to its crew. And it's a astonishing, beautifully written, fascinating book. I hope that I'll talk to David for Gabfest Reads, but um you should definitely check out The Wager by David Grant. Listeners, you also chatter, you email them. That's what you do. You email them to us at slate.com. And you have sent us a bunch of good ones. And our listener chatter this week comes from John, not Dickerson,
4: another John. Hello, it's John from Austin, Texas. It was just announced that the four surviving Trappist monks occupying Engelzell Abbey in Austria are leaving, abandoning the Abbey they have occupied since 1925. Most Americans know Trappist monks from Belgian Trappist beers, but there are Trappist monks all over the world, in England and Massachusetts, for instance. The Trappists follow the rule of St. Benedict and show their devotion to God through labor, hence Trappist beers, Trappist cheeses, Trappist spirits, etc., Engelsell was the world's only German language Trappist monastery. The story of how these particular monks came to Engelsell nearly a hundred years ago is fascinating. That the last four are now leaving due to an inability to recruit new monks is an historic landmark. I have a very small role in the story. I helped develop their brewery and have sold their beers in the US since they began brewing around a decade ago. I have visited their gorgeous abbey and, due to a scheduling conflict, was even allowed to sit in silent prayer with the monks. I've not seen this report in English language media, but Google Translate works wonders. I'll add briefly that around 2010, I took my girlfriend to the first live GabFest in New York City. I put my name and her name in the hat to win lunch with the GabFest without mentioning it to her. Her name was drawn. She was very surprised to hear David read her name on the GabFest, and we had a lovely lunch with Emily and Hannah. 13 years or so later, we are happily married with two beautiful kids and still listeners. Thanks.
0: That's nice. Wait, it was just with Emily, not with?
1: Emily and Hannah, I think. Yeah. I, thought, I don't remember doing lunch with just Hannah, but maybe I did.
0: Wow. There we go. That's our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Ops. And Alicia Montgomery is VP of Audio for Slate. Please... Tweet chatter to us at SlateGabFest and follow us on Twitter there. And email chatter to us also at gabfest for Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson. I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, Slate Plus. How are you? Special treat today. Will Salatan, writer at The Bulwark, was our longtime colleague and friend at Slate. Uh, and Will has, has spent what must have been months marinating in lindsey graham and he's written a multi-part series the corruption of lindsey graham a case study in the rise of authoritarianism for the bulwark why 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 would you spend all this time what were you studying what were you seeking to learn we know the republican party capitulated to trump why study it In one man in so much detail. So I wanted
5: to tell the story. I wanted to basically understand what the hell happened to this country during the Trump years. And um, I wasn't so interested in Trump himself because, you know, authoritarians come along in every country, people who we've had businessmen run for president, and a lot of them would have been dangerous. What happened this time was that a whole political party fell in line behind this guy. And the reason that I focused on one man to explain it was, it's a complicated story. And I wanted to be able to trace over time exactly how the mindset of of a senator, of a leading Republican changed from diametrically opposing Donald Trump and understanding exactly why he was so dangerous to becoming his chief enabler. And because Lindsey Graham would not keep his mouth shut because he talked so much, he wanted everyone to know what he thought all the time. There's this just amazing documentary trove of everything he said. So Week to week, month to month, you can just see how his how his rationales, his ideas, his arguments change to accommodate Trumpism.
2: Explain or what is your take on? There was a time when Lindsey Graham, um, not just because of his relationship to John McCain, although maybe that was it, fashioned himself as a kind of um, like truth teller in the party, particularly about. I remember interviewing him where he basically said, "You know, if we become a party of just angry white people." And I think he might have said angry white males, like we're just going to have no future. So he was he was he had some fights that he used to have with the part of his party that Donald Trump has now represents or the people associate with Donald Trump. So how do you see that? Which is it's not just his um, change with respect to a single person, but it's also change with respect to the way he used to think about his party and maybe they're totally connected.
5: Yeah. So when when Graham ran for president in 2015, he described himself as, he said, Trump was trying to get all the people who thought Obama was from Kenya and was a Muslim and all that stuff. And Graham said, I'm going for the other crowd. So he was postulating that there was a a lot of Republicans who didn't agree with that stuff and that Graham was going to consolidate them and that was going to be a viable base for a Republican candidacy. And what he learned was that (laughs) the Trump base was much more of the party than he thought. And of course, Graham never got above 1% and he dropped out, right? And so Trump gets elected. And then you see how Graham changes to the point where in late 2017, by this point, Graham's been sucking up to Trump for a while. He's describing the Trump base as we, we decided that. And so he just made his peace with this base of the Republican Party. And John, you can, you can argue that Graham had to do this because he was going to be – to get reelected in South Carolina, he needed the Trump base, and he, those are the people he would have to get to win, uh, to win a primary. But uh, I think it's more than that. I think that he embraced Trump, he embraced Trump's people, and he just got inside
0: that mentality of being one of those folks. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation, if you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today.
3: Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th